And good morning, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn, when we get into all kinds of interesting subjects that the uh, mainstream either is too busy or too disinclined to want to pull back the curtain. Well, tonight... We're going to pull on a very important curtain, a very intriguing thread with an old friend and colleague that Robin and I had dinner with, oh, back in 2009. I mean, how time how time goes by. Anyway, before we get to uh, Holger, uh, Holger Eisenberg, who was a computer specialist, an imaging specialist, and a uh, generally astute individual when it comes to software and NASA programs, and most particularly the color of the images. Let me uh, hit a few high spots here on the uh, uh, other side of midnight. We're going to start with news. The major news of this week, given that all the other stuff is kind of like the same old, same old, uh, is that Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, died at 99 on Friday, yesterday. And this is really kind of a shock in the uh, Western world because the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, uh, they keep referring to him as the consort of the Queen. Uh, I always used to think that consorts were, you know, like a liaisons where the partners were not married, but, you know, they were been married for 70-plus years. My, my uh, grandparents lived together that long. <clears throat> and... Uh, he was in pretty good health up until a couple of years ago. I think he had a, an automobile accident uh, where he gave up his driver's license voluntarily. And although he appeared to be unhurt, his, his health declined somewhat after that and then rather precipitously. Anyway, um, there's a story, item number one. And tonight it's going to be a little different getting to my items and Ron uh, Gerbron's items and Tim Saunders' items because you have to take two steps. First is you go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our home page. Click on that. That will take you to uh, our home URL. And then at the uh, uh, top of that, you'll see tonight's uh, show with uh, Holger Eisenberg, uh, the true colors of NASA and the planet Mars. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And on the guest page, of course, there is... Uh, uh, all kinds of interesting things. If you start at the very top, uh, there is my promo for tonight. And right under that, scroll down a little bit, uh, you'll see Holger's items. To find mine tonight, you have to click on, if you miss this step, you're not going to see what we're going to talk about. You have to click on the fast links to items right under the banner at the top of the guest page, revealing the true colors of NASA and the planet Mars. So you click on those fast items, click on my name, and you will also see on the same page, because we had so many links tonight and images that we had to set up a um, <clears throat> separate page for Tim, Ron, and uh, me, as well as Ruggiero. He's going to join us in the third hour. If you click on my items, click on Richard, that will take you to the page that has been prepared for me. And at the very top, there's a story on uh, Prince Philip, and uh, he had an incredibly interesting life. I mean, he spanned 
um, an era of generational change. He was born in 1921. Imagine the world of 1921 and now the world of uh, 2021. Very uh, major changes on planet Earth indeed. He kind of represents the last of an old school. And uh, I was talking with Bob Harrison a little earlier, and he says that uh, Britain is really kind of uh, in shock because he and the Queen are kind of like uh, iconic figures. And, you know, we have a tendency to think that iconic figures will always be there. And uh, because of the frailties of human uh, uh, activity on planet Earth, sometimes, eventually, everyone, they are not. So it's kind of like a marker. And if you're interested in the history of the British Empire and the modern, you know, post-World War uh, re revolution of the world, uh, Prince Philip played a very interesting role. And his, his origins are very intriguing. Um, so you might want to go and take a look at that because it represents another passing of an era. And the era is not likely to return. Item number two, right under that, um, we've been very focused on this show, as you know, for the last several weeks on the rather extraordinary results of the um, uh, Perseverance mission, the second major SUV-sized rover mission to the planet Mars. Well, for nine years, um, Percy's cousin, Curiosity, has been meandering around this 100-mile-wide crater. The Yezero crater is only about 28 miles across. The Gale crater, in which um, Curiosity has been exploring, is 100 miles, just a little shy of 100 miles. So it represents a very different set of features. It has this enormous um, three-mile peak in the center of it that rises like the Matterhorn, and um, our views as to what it is are very, very different from um, the traditional NASA view which I presume as part of the Perseverance coverage we're going to get into. Ron Gerbron has made a very interesting study of the Curiosity mission and has been following the details, even though public attention has kind of moved to its cousin, Perseverance. So we may get into some of that. It recently explored a very interesting peak. Peak. It's a little thing 20 feet high. But they took all kinds of images, did stereo, did color. And when you look at the close-ups, there are stunning, obvious evidences of all kinds of artificial structures on this. Uh, it's called Mount Merku, which Ron tells me is a kind of a transliteration of uh, uh, Mount Meru, which is a very famous mythical mountain in uh, in India. Uh, and there's several counterparts <clears throat> in several different other cultures. It's supposed to be mythologically a world mountain, a mountain kind of connecting earth and sky. And uh, the specific name Merku apparently was assigned to a mountain, a real mountain in France. Um, but when you look at the attention that uh, the Curiosity mission has paid to its little tiny counterpart, 20 feet high on on Mars in Gale Crater, you will see, and maybe by next week I'll have some close-ups worked up, there are stunning details 
of all kinds of ancient architecture, ancient machinery, ancient cabling. You know, you don't see cables on planets that don't have civilizations. These look like big, you know, uh, rubber-wrapped cables because they're three-dimensional. They run for hundreds of feet. <clears throat> they have shadows. The shadows change with sun angle. What in the world are... Anyway, it, that, that's a long discussion that I don't divert you from because the primary reason for going to that article is that for the last nine years, Curiosity has been exploring with a suite of very sophisticated uh, scientific instruments the ideas of the ebb and flow of water on Mars. And there are some very intriguing things that have come out of the Curiosity study, which are kind of tabulated in that article, including the fact that uh, the Martian water did not disappear all of a sudden. Apparently it ebbed and flowed, and Gale was at various times a lake, and then a desert, and then a lake again, and then a desert. Kind of sounds like a lot of terrain uh, here in the great American Southwest. Anyway, moving on, we have many, many missions uh, that are alive and well on Mars tonight. One of them, which reached Mars several years ago, is called the InSight mission, which is kind of like an inside pun because of all the missions to Mars that have been sent, <clears throat> apart from the first Viking back in 1976, which we're going to talk at length about tonight. Uh, the InSight mission was the first lander since Viking to carry a seismometer. And why is that important? Well, because seismometers, which measure Earth movement, or in this case, Mars movement, you know, the ground under underneath the lander, um, are a very important way of finding out what's going on inside a planet whether it's active geologically or passive, whether it's got active heat sources generating, you know, uh, differentials in the tectonics, which generate uh, strike-lift faults, which generate shock waves, which are earthquakes, etc., etc., etc. And anyone living in the um, Western California area with the San Andreas Fault knows full well what I'm speaking about. But on Mars, the earthquakes are very, very different. There are lots of little ones, and only four big ones, like above um, 3.5 on the Richter scale, I think they've measured. And they all appear to be clustered in one area. It's very hard to determine where an earthquake occurs on Mars when you have only one station. There's some very complicated math and assumptions about, you know, S waves and P waves and velocities and directions and all that. But they appear to have localized the big quakes in a region on Mars called Valles Marineris, specifically one of the canyons called um, Candor Chasma. And it's interesting that there should be very active uh, tectonics going on in Candor Chasma because there does not appear to be, from any of the missions we have sent and any of the infrared scans of the night side, any real active volcanism anywhere on Mars. Mars is supposed to have geologically died a very long time ago, billions and billions of years, to misquote uh, Carl Sagan. But this active major vol uh, volcanic, major uh, tectonic activity focused in the canyons, the deep canyons, this huge, you know, the, the Valles Marineris, which is the Valley of Mariner, 
because it was Mariner 9 that took the pictures that first revealed it, is about as wide, or as long, I should say, as the United States is wide, like 3,000 miles. And there are places where it's like many miles deep, up to, I think, five kilometers, three miles, something like that. So why should there be activity occurring in that canyon? Well, it is kind of on the slopes very distantly by thousands of miles of the so-called Tharsis Bulge. And it's very possible that the Tharsis Bulge is still collapsing <clears throat> from when Mars was a tidally locked satellite orbiting Planet 4. This is the work of Tom Van Flandern, the late Dr. Tom Van Flandern, who was the uh, one of the key astronomers at the U.S. Naval Observatory before his very untimely death just a few years ago. Tom had developed something called the Exploded Planet Hypothesis, which proposed that Mars used to be a moon, a satellite, along with another unnamed moon satellite orbiting a very large uh, super-Earth, uh, several times a planet, several times the mass of the Earth, of which there is no example left in our solar system. Now, in exoplanetary solar systems all over the galaxy, uh, the various missions, Kepler and, and uh, the others have spotted, both from the ground and from orbit, all kinds of planetary systems orbiting other stars where there's a whole category of super-Earth, meaning planets that have more mass than the Earth, two, three, maybe four times the mass of the Earth, but not up to the mass of Uranus and Neptune, which are much more massive gas giants in the outer parts of this solar system. So our own solar system is bereft of these super-Earths. Well, according to Van Flandern's work, um, there used to be one, at least one, where the current asteroid belt now lives, and for some reason which he was never able to explain and explore, but which we have a provisional model to account for, basically in the hyperdimensional torsion field physics model, the interior pressures and dynamics of this uh, unknown fourth planet blew it to kingdom come, releasing into a solar orbit from its gravitational pull the uh, former satellites of Mars and an unknown second body, a second moon, a second planetary mass moon, which Tom then went on to calculate based on other evidence, Dooley itself blew up um, about 3.2 million years ago. The, the big planet, the one that Mars used to orbit as a moon, blew up according to Van Flandern's calculations about 66 million years ago. And if that number sounds familiar, it's because that's when the dinosaurs died when something very large struck the earth an extraordinary almost fateful blow in what is now the yucatan at 19.5 uh, north and totally changed the world ending the um, cretaceous uh, era beginning the uh, uh, modern era of geology and biology and wiping out huge amounts of uh, fauna and flora, something like 90% of all life forms from that impact and the after effects died, and then Earth slowly repopulated and ecological niches were born anew and life spread into new areas and 
new species were born, and ultimately this little tiny marsupial bred mammal uh, evolved, again we are told, into Homo sapiens sapiens, which can now send out spacecraft around the solar system and ask the important questions. Which leads me into item number four, because as you know, one of the um, kind of points of this this uh, location between our ideas and a lot of the mainstream ideas revolve around this concept that there is a physics which really runs the universe and which the mainstream either is not aware of or has been carefully guided away from because you will not find mention of it in very many texts although the soviets the old style soviets did a lot of work in the field of torsion field physics with a um a brilliant a genius physicist named uh, Kozarev, Nikolai Kozarev. And over the years, I've published a lot of articles on the physics with references to Kozarev's work. And we've done some experimental work, both in the lab and in the field, confirming a lot of the predictions of the model. Well, in the last few days, there has been a remarkable publication of mainstream high-energy physics experiments going on uh, decades ago at a place called Brookhaven, which is a high-energy physics lab on Long Island, and more recently, the Fermi Lab, which is located in Batavia, Illinois. And what the uh, Illinois experiments were designed to do was to try to replicate the rather bizarre and anomalous results of the Brookhaven experiment over 10 years ago, which indicated in the fine details of reactions to forces by subatomic particles like protons and electrons and neutrons and one that you may not have heard a lot about called a muon. Um, muons were found in cosmic rays back in the 20s and 30s. They are kind of mysterious. They don't live very long. If you find a naked muon, uh, roughly two millionths of a second later, <clears throat> it will have decayed through a process called radioactive decay into an electron and some other interesting debris. Um, but it weighs, it has a mass about 200 times the electron, but it has an identical electric charge. So what physicists do routinely is they aim beams of particles in these high-energy accelerators at targets, which then produce muons. And the muons spew out in all directions, and they can be, <clears throat> since they're magnetic, they can be guided by magnetic fields, and they can be directed to interact with matter on their own. And you'll learn a lot about both the muon itself as well as the matter that it's interacting with. Well, b bottom line, about 10 years ago, the Brookhaven experiments found something really kind of weird about the behavior of the muon and its interaction with magnetic fields. Flash forward the film. A few days ago, papers were published which said that the Fermi lab had repeated those experiments, and lo and behold, they found the same anomalous results. And the conclusion now is that the results are real, and they're going to know that in the next few months because of the rate at which uh, duplicating experiments are being set up and run at other high-energy physics labs. If the results hold up, it means, according to some of the physicists who were quoted in that article, that there is an unknown force operating on the muon 
that has hitherto not been recognized by mainstream physics. Nay, perchance may I venture a proposition that the unknown force they're measuring, without knowing yet what they're measuring, is in fact the torsion field. And so we see the beginnings, maybe, of the mainstream moving into the um, exotic zone of alternative physics and explanations of the laws of the universe. And again, it's one of those, uh, time will tell, and if we just are a little patient and stay tuned, we will know one way or the other, probably in the not-too-distant future. In fact, some of the scientists are now saying we could know definitively at what's called the five or four sigma level in the next few months, which, of course, then open up a doorway to consider all the other incredibly interesting anomalies which mainstream physics has been kind of quietly ignoring in in lieu of their passion and love for these very high-energy, very expensive collective experimental machines they've been developing for the last, you know, 100 years to try to investigate uh, subatomic matter and subatomic fields. So stay tuned. But there could be a connection between item number four and item number three, because perchance the mysterious earthquakes on a planet that's supposedly dead could be traced to the fact that it's not dead in terms of its interaction with the torsion field. Stay tuned. Moving on, number five, item number five. We're going to be talking tonight with my uh, guest of the, of the evening and the morning, uh, Holger Eisenberg, about the true colors of Mars. And the colors are so interesting to delve into because depending upon which mission goes and which cameras are used, the colors of Mars are literally all over the map. In fact, the latest ones from Perseverance have taken on a sickeningly greenish bile-like color, which is in startling, startling contradiction to the first wide-angle so-called hazard cam color view that was downlinked a few hours after the Perseverance landing, which is item number um, seven. And that is, if you click on that, that's a uh, reprocessed view over the last couple of weeks of that first Hascam image. And if you'll notice, Mars above this extraordinary um, desert-like landscape has a stunning blue sky color familiar to those of us on planet Earth. That opens up an extraordinary can of worms, which we're going to tackle rather systematically by bringing on my friend Holger Eisenberg shortly. But you might want to take a look at item 7A, which is a detail of the sky um, of the first Perseverance Hascam image. And those of you who are, you know, relatively of sharp eye, if you click on that, you'll see that in the sky, to the east of the Perseverance rover, there's a whole bunch of very strange geometry. Item number eight carries that one step further. This is a colorized version made from meshing uh, two camera systems on the descending Perseverance rover when it was on the parachute. And we talked about this 
a couple weeks ago. This is a about a 180 degree pan made by putting all those images together and then using the color from the downward looking color camera during the descent to fill in the color. And if you look very carefully, you will see from a, a point about six and a half miles over Yezero Crater as the Perseverance lander was falling gently on its parachute. You will see that in fact there's something geometric, glass-like, glistening with rainbows over the Yezero crater on the planet Mars. And it should not be there. Finally, item number nine. This is an image that Ron sent me just uh, last night, and I was so intrigued with it because it's a wide-angle uh, navigational camera image from the Perseverance rover. Um, out in the midfield is the little tiny Ingenuity uh, helicopter. I'm going to have more to say about the helicopter in a couple of minutes. But you want to click on that image and you want to look in detail, not at the ground and those two sets of uh, treads, which are the um, Perseverance rover's wheels, but you want to look at the sky. This is an image taken by the navigation camera uh, looking back. There were two left and right. There are two images. They both show the same thing. They show the sky looking west at about 2.40 local time in the afternoon, well, well before sunset. And what you see here is something which, frankly, is impossible. If, again, the Mars that we've been given, a la NASA, the environs of the Yezero crater, are in fact as they have been represented by the Perseverance team. Because what we're seeing are apparently two brilliant luminosities in the Martian sky looking west, one at the horizon, one well above the horizon, with two other fainter light sources to the left and to the right of the source at the top of the frame. From the geometry and the time, we know the object at the top of the frame is the sun. The object to the left and right appear to be a phenomenon on Earth we call sun dogs, which are produced on our planet by ice crystals that refract um, differentially and are lined up geometrically the uh, light of the sun and create uh, prisms, a, a synthetic rainbow display of prism activity 22 degrees to the left and 22 degrees to the right of the sun. Well, we don't have that phenomenon going on on Mars. It's very rare that you get CO2 crystals lined up <clears throat> to give you this kind of phenomenon. But from the Jezero crater looking toward the west at about 2.30, 2.40 in the afternoon, there appear to be two suns in the sky. And the one that's the real sun, the one at the top of the frame, is dimmer than the one at the bottom with an incredible glow all along the horizon and these incredibly interesting color patches to the left and right. What the hell is going on? Well, again, this data, these images, are totally consistent with there being an extraordinary glass dome above the Yezero crater.
Now, how come Perseverance wasn't destroyed and falling through the dome? Because most of it is missing. What you're seeing is a pale vestige, an eroded, ghostly presence of what used to be in this model. But there's enough of it left that even looking toward the open side, the dome is thicker behind the camera to the east, but even looking to the open side, there's enough to cause a stunning pattern of color and geometry in what should be, according to NASA, a featureless, kind of icky, butterscotch sky. So what is really going on? Well, I'll tell you what. We'll get into what is going on when we return, because we're going to be talking this morning about nothing more and nothing less than this extraordinarily familiar song. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. There's a land that I heard of once and a One of the ways that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government to control perception at a, on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. 
So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Annetta, and Kinthia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, April 10th, 2021. My guest this morning is Holger Eisenberg, and we're going to be talking with him about uh, some very interesting things over the rainbow. I mean, the thing that always puzzled me was why, uh, as I was standing at JPL that amazing morning back in 1976, in the kind of front vestibule of the uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which uh, had behind a couple of uh, double doors of the major auditorium called the Von Karman Auditorium, where all the press briefings on all the NASA missions that had been fanning out all across the solar system, the mariners uh, uh, had been held. And this particular morning, it was the the morning after the landing at the crack of dawn of the first Viking lander on the planet Mars. And I'm sitting between um, uh, Eric Burgess, who was one of the co-founders of the British Interplanetary Society, along with Arthur Clarke, on my left. And on my right is Gene Roddenberry. And of course, he needs no introduction. And uh, after a agonizing descent to the uh, Martian surface, Remember, everything is delayed because of the speed of light, so all the events that we were witness to, as we were witness to the Perseverance landing a few weeks ago, all take place long before the speed of light carries the information back to Earth, and we know whether these things succeed or they fail. So everything we were watching um, had already occurred at Mars, 
And so there was a successful landing, and then we all waited in the auditorium um, on that night of July 20th, 1976. July 20th, a very important uh, date, um, the date of the first lunar landing by Apollo 11. Um, the date of uh, an Osirian Egyptian uh, symbolic resurrection in the Egyptian uh, mythos and, and mythology. Anyway, so we're all waiting for the first picture, and the picture comes in, and there had been this huge fight between the NASA scientists and the engineers. The scientists, of course, had wanted to see what Mars looked like, and the engineers wanted a picture of the footpad, because if uh, Viking disappeared, they wanted to know whether it had been due to sinking into deep, deep dust so they could design the, the next missions better, knowing the surface conditions that had done their lander in. Well, the first image came in, and it's this, you know, line-by-line -line scan of the footpad with some little rocks and some sand in it, black and white, black and white, no, no, no color yet. Then the next picture is a line-by-line -line vertical scan, because these were literally, uh, in that era, they were not like what they call framing cameras, like the camera in your smartphone, they were what are called line scan cameras, meaning that inside they had little mirrors that nodded up and down and looked out at the landscape through slits. And then as the mirror nodded, the landscape was imaged on a series of photodiodes at the base of the camera vertically. And then the uh, slit in what looked almost like a, like a tank turret would rotate from left to right, and the combination of the two motions, left and right rotation and up and down scanning, produced a line-by-line -line black and white image again of the surface for the first time in modern era history of the planet Mars. And we're watching and we're watching in this amazing landscape the real surface is coming into view and the auditorium is holding its breath and we're looking and we're looking and finally it gets to the edge and <clears throat> to my right, Roddenberry leaps up, points his finger into the sky and yells, cut, print. <laughs> anyway, my friend Gene Roddenberry. So we're going to talk about Viking. We're going to start with the story of the true colors of Mars, whatever they may be with one of our citizen scientists who has done probably more than almost anybody else, certainly in my purview, to try to figure out the labyrinthian science and engineering behind the first color images of Mars taken from the surface by this robot called the Viking 1, and then subsequently, a couple of months later, the Viking 2 landers, which began a mystery which is unresolved to this day which is, what is the real color of Mars? Okay, a little background on Holger. He has done systems operation and consulting around Java-based enterprise applications since 1999 in Germany. And in 2016, he moved to the center of the digital universe, Silicon Valley, where he's now solving customer problems at a company specializing in providing high-performance Java VFs VMSs. In his spare time, he applies his software engineering skills in the public database provided by the Mars Spaceflight Missions. While working on data provided by Mars Missions as an independent researcher, 
he began investigating Martian mysteries um, during the 1997 Pathfinder landing mission, and then he got intrigued with an even earlier mission, which, of course, was the Viking mission, and since then has offered public software services and tools like True Color Photo Browsers over the Pathfinder and Spirit and Opportunity missions and Space Mission Raw Image Converters. Data archaeology on the historic Viking lander camera tapes was one of his earliest projects. It is difficult to convince him now that there are other sky colors of Mars than the human-friendly blue, and we're going to find out why. Since the 2012 Curiosity landing, Holger has been an active participant in the Mars Society conventions that are held annually, with posters and talks in addition to being a member of the local group in Mountain View, California, which is just down the street from NASA Ames. Aside from spaceflight technology and traveling to ancient sites is one of his interests here on Earth and wandering about ancient engineering achievements in Egypt and in South America. In 2005, he acquired at the University of Dortmund the German Diploma in Computer Science and the secondary topic of electrical engineering. Holger Eisenberg, come on down. This is your life. Yeah, hi. thank you, Richard, uh, for having me today here. And uh, uh, greetings to everyone from the Golden State uh, here with the blue sky in California. It uh, worked out well those four years for me now after the relocation. And uh, good to be here on the show. How are you finding the United States? I mean, when you when you and Robert and I had dinner uh, that night here in 20, 2009, you were on your first visit to the United States, and you went and met a number of other people that we kind of mutually know. We had a marvelous evening. How did you wind up deciding to move here? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, 2009, and that was only uh, a holiday trip. Uh, Back then, because I traveled around uh, in Europe before uh, for curiosity, see other places, but I uh, have not been to the US before. And 2009, I decided uh, let's take a look what's happening there. <laughs> and it, in Germany, we have uh, four weeks vacation per year, so uh, it is a good opportunity then to get around from there, from that country. And that was uh, one reason I, I had the opportunity to travel. And uh, at, uh, that was a really special year also because of uh, one of the last uh, space shuttle launches. And I wanted to ah. see one of those uh, big events uh, only seen previously on TV. And with my interest in space flight, uh, I had to take the chance to uh, see it before it is stored in the archives. Uh, it was announced already a few years before. And uh, that was other reason to visit. Uh, and I was lucky to see it, even because you never know if it <laughs> starts uh, for weather conditions and other. And I was lucky to see it uh, during my stay of five days in there, Orlando. There, there is nothing like a major rocket launch. I have been incredibly fortunate to have seen a huge number, more than you know, one person probably deserves in my in my professional career, starting with the uh, incredible Saturn V and the journeys to the moon when I went to work for CBS. How? What did you think of your first shuttle launch? Did it live up 
to your expectations. Uh, you, you feel it. <laughs> you feel the uh, air, the constant explosions from the rocket engine, as vibrations all around you. Uh, the, uh, I stayed at the 10 kilometer away, the further, uh, the, uh, the closest point you can get uh, as public there on the causeway with a long row of buses with thousands of uh, Oh, yes, the famous, the, the famous causeway, yes. And uh, when it starts, everything is rattling around, uh, car alarms go off. <laughs> it's a big event, and, uh, and it's over after 70 seconds, 80 well, seconds. And, well, well now, and, uh, now that you're a resident, when they finally launch the SLS, which is, I think, going to be at the end of the year, maybe, or maybe early part of next year, which is the biggest rocket since the Saturn V that NASA has created, are you planning to go back to the Cape? Uh, it would be more interesting to see a SpaceX launch, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With uh, being that the future. But uh, sure, if the SLS launches, that would be also a reason to travel again. Hopefully, hopefully we can travel easily again uh, with the current conditions. But yes, that would be a reason to uh, go there again. But uh, one uh, detail about this shuttle launch, especially with my previous location in Germany, because uh, many launches uh, occur in a situation during, uh, well, if, if they launch... Uh, during dawn, you can see the launch on TV live and then go outside and 15 minutes later, you see the shuttle and oh, my, the my, second my, my. point, uh, the tank flying over you in Germany. So 15 minutes later, after you saw the launch cross the Atlantic, <laughs> that is an, also a nice uh, experience that you can see there. You see the two dots crossing over you in the sky because it's it's at the very same latitude 50 uh, mm. 51 north mm -hmm. where the uh, space shuttle launch to the space so the ISS usually happen and if you have the right conditions during uh, during dawn when the upper part of the atmosphere is still in sunlight and you in darkness already in the night then you see it uh, yeah uh, Holger, we're 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 getting some weird mic noises i think it's the oh, cord I, around a bit, yeah. I, I think it's care, the cord yeah. on your mic yeah i take care uh, yeah not yeah, too, too much yeah I, I i was taught radio broadcasting in the modern era from art bell and uh, keith Rowland, and they were fanatics about sound so i'm kind of hypersensitive yeah. to weird sounds let me ask you this question how did you get interested in space? You grew up as a kid in Germany. You obviously yeah. have a technical uh, frame of mind. But what got you really obsessed, and I use that term in, as a complimentary term, yeah. what got you obsessed with space? Uh, I, I guess one reason was from, uh, I read many books, and one of those books was uh, from Erich von Däniken. Ah. Swiss German author, and for the U.S. audience, uh, yeah, he started the Ancient Aliens movement in the late 1960s already in Europe, and that came later here as the Ancient Alien show. But uh, his books started uh, at least uh, in the broad audience topics, and that was uh, interesting with with me with a technical background and the, the curiosity to. Uh, in general, trying to find out how stuff works. 
and uh, that brought another aspect about uh, finding out uh, how history maybe have worked. <laughs> we don't know exactly, mm. but uh, it brought in an, a different point of view that was interesting. So a completely different point of view. So that so obviously fueled your interest in ancient terrestrial civilizations like Egypt, because Van Doniken wrote this book, which was published here uh, in the 1970s, called Chariots of the Gods. And for those of you... Yeah, that is uh, interesting. That is uh, the American or the English title. Right. The German title is uh, Erinnerungen an die Zukunft, Memories of the Future. That is the German title. Wow. That is really different. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's less blazing, more uh, abstract. But, uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the, the title alone alone is interesting. Uh, By the way, I discovered the other day that Von Daniken is doing a podcast, and he's talking to all kinds of uh, space folks. Um, so if you wanted to talk with Von Daniken directly, if you never have, uh, he's yeah. he's sending out invitations. In fact, he sent me one, and I'm kind of musing over, do I want to do Von Donneken's show? But then he said at the bottom of the invitation, and I'll do yours. So if I can get Eric Von Donneken on the other side of midnight, yes, I will do his podcast. <laughs> would be definitely interesting. Yes, uh, yes. In fact, if you'd like... I, I met him many times already in Germany. Ah, because, okay. Uh, he, even at his age, now he's still uh, going around, uh, having presentations at large, large audiences in Europe. And... Uh, well, he was really a pioneer. He was he was really a pioneer because he 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 made the statement, which was, of course, it freaked out the mainstream, that an awful lot of the archaeology that we see that is really inexplicable, like the uh, pyramids at Giza, um, are really due to. I mean, he he used a misnomer. He thought of it as alien technology, which I think put a lot of people off because they imagined, you know, bug-eyed monsters coming down and you know, building these things with humans kind of standing on the sidelines going, oh, look at that, look at that. In in fact, it's a lot more interesting and complex because it probably is our own great, 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 great ancestors who in our model grew up after having been transported to Mars um, and came back to Earth and built a lot of the stuff that's built with a technology which appears to be inexplicable. So I'm going to I'm going to seriously weigh uh, doing his show and having him do this show because it is now time to do a top-to-bottom reassessment of his ideas and particularly to see if they have evolved over the last 30, 40 years since his book became a major bestseller. Definitely, yeah. And for me, it was uh, not only, uh, not so specifically the, the alien topic is the interesting one, just that... Uh, he provided a different point of view uh, and tried to explain it uh, because if if you see those ancient buildings as with an engineering mind, you get an impression that must have been engineers at that time. They must have known mathematics and geometry, and uh, they didn't create those with uh, with uh, simple tools like stone axes or long stone balls. Well, the very he, simple he reason attacked, that... he addressed uh, the question what was going on, and uh, sure, then one, one explanation are aliens, not necessarily uh, uh, 
the right explanation maybe in my point of view, uh, but at least he tried to explain it. Others just avoided the question. So you grew up reading him. You read, I presume, some science fiction. There's some very good uh, German also, science, yeah. <laughs> giant science fiction. Did did the exploits of Werner von Braun enter into your thinking at all? Yeah, that is interesting question for me with a German background, because Werner von Braun is really avoided in Germany. You never see him on TV, at least really? not during my time. So after the 1970s, uh, 80s, 90s, uh, you, I guess he was never shown really on TV in large shows. Um, and you, even at, in history or so, you don't hear from him. And uh, for example, those large TV shows uh, shown in the US from this Disney in the 1960s, Men in Space, uh, I only heard of them. Uh, during the internet time around the year 2000, when they were republished then either on the internet as YouTube or similar or uh, on DVD. So it was quite a surprise to see those then back then that late. Hmm. And one reason is, uh, sure, his connection with the military technology and the National Socialists at that time that he was involved uh, in helping them by with his technology. That is... Uh, than one reason, so maybe this, not to mention him too much in Germany. Then. So this had to do with the backlash against the Nazis in World War II yeah, and so, yeah. and all of that. So, um, but but if you were intrigued with NASA and going to the moon, how could how could the world not know, even in Germany, that Werner von Braun was one of the key architects of the Saturn V rocket, which made it all possible? That, that sure, that is somehow known, but. Uh, he was never shown uh, that much in public in documentaries like here in the US, where for his, with being him uh, one of the starting points for the American Space Flight Program. Interesting. Uh, we're here. getting those but mic Germany, noises. Yeah, yeah hold your, we're Germany, getting those mic uh, noises. So I try, <laughs> I try to avoid the movement here. Yeah, yeah but, I, uh, I think it has to do with the cord. If you can do something with the yeah. cord, because when you I, move... I can try to uh, switch to... Uh, Bluetooth headset, uh, and let's see. Well, if we're going to make a transition, I'll tell you what, why don't we wait until the top of the hour because we're coming up to a break. I wanted to get... The microphone quality might not be that good, but at least no... Oh, no, 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 it's very good. Good, yeah. Yeah, okay. Ah, We've eliminated the mic cord noises, okay. Um, Okay, so um, you didn't really actively get involved in space missions, in NASA missions, in digital computer image processing, I believe until the 1997 uh, Pathfinder and Sojourner missions. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, one reason to start there was that uh, in the mid-1990s, internet became available for the public in Germany, or at least a fast, reasonable fast internet and reasonable cheap internet. And with that, you had a huge amount of sources you can look at. Uh, you didn't need to go to the library to find information, look around in historic papers. That uh, was the reason I started them there. With, and you, you had access to the data. That was something new. And you could process the data because that was not either not possible before because the computer technology available at home, at home 
was uh, starting in the mid-90s that you can process those large images, which wasn't possible a few years earlier. So the technological revolution of, of home computers and the Internet really brought you face-to-face -face with, with uh, NASA and other space data, right? Yeah. I have, before, it, it was a time where you actually went to libraries. <laughs> I remember those, yes. And I did that also during college time, so I read many other stuff outside of computer science about history and uh, also space uh, science. And uh, But that, uh, the internet brought another level then into that. And you could take a look yourself more. You can take a look at the real source and don't need to read uh, books other wrote about the topics. Mm. I don't think the Bluetooth is going to work. It's really mangling your words. I think we need to go back to the <laughs> other mic, but we need to do something with the cord. Uh, fortunately, we have we have the top of the hour coming up, so we'll have time to... to yeah, at know. least uh, try to continue with that somehow. Yeah, I, I think the other mic is better. Sorry, folks, this is called Backstage Radio. Um, so, um, until the top of the hour, what was it about the, the Pathfinder mission other than accessibility that got you really intrigued with the image processing side? Pathfinder? Yeah, it, uh, it, back then, the color topic already started because ah. many more images were available, becoming available in a, in a short time. Within, within a day, you received dozens of images and many are showing different colors. It was an raising questions, what is happening there? It is some random process. Uh, why it is so difficult to uh, to show consistent colors? Because I, at that time, I didn't take, I didn't have experience with image processing. So just only uh, more uh, software work, but not specialized in image processing. Why so I, I could neither understand what is happening there and try to find out. Hmm. So you say the color really kind of caught you even then. What was it about the Pathfinder color that you found? Say what, let's, let's just hold it there, okay, because we are at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Holger Eisenberg. He is a um, citizen scientist. He is professionally a digital software uh, professional. Um, he has, you know, done this as a life's work in Germany. He moved back in 2016 to Silicon Valley. <clears throat> and is uh, now actively engaged by day in the um, pursuits of uh, computer processing and by night. Uh, as an avocation, he's looking into the whole idea of color and what color means in terms of NASA and other program imagery. Um, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. 
Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.